This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishnadas shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishnadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. This is beautiful bhajan that uh, sung by one of the great singers of India, Bhimsen Joshi. This is, O Lord, I've gone to all the puja, all the, all the tirthas, all the sacred places. I've done all these practices and taken your name and still the vasanas of my own mind, the tendency of my own mind to keep running down the same dirty old streets. Just, I can't stop it. (laughs) Tulsi Das wrote this great poem. It's on... uh, the cover of one of my CDs, I forget. <clears throat> he said, uh, I speak to uh, he says, he's talking to Ram and he says, you know, uh, anybody have that CD with them? The one track heart? She's got everything, this woman. <laughs> I speak to Hanuman. Thus, I speak to King Ram, the perfect gentle one. I speak to Shiva himself, the ocean of grace. Be aware and listen all of joy and sorrow, love and anger, of virtue and vice has the creator made all, of time and nature and fate Ram is the doer. God is the doer. So I have known this truth, having dwelt upon it in my heart. O Lord, only quench this moping and grieving. What is there that you can't do? Oh, well, 
Let me grow silent, knowing that I reap what I have sown. That's it. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) That's it, you know. Where was that gentleman that was talking about free will yesterday? Is he still here? Or did he take his free will and went somewhere else? (laughs) We think we have free will, and so we act that way. But, you know, like people say to me, I can smoke cigarettes. I have free will. I can do what I want. Yes, you can. But why would you do something that you know is going to fucking kill you? That's free will? No, it's already a conditioned response to something in the past. So it's not a free choice. Free will means being able to make a choice that isn't conditioned by the previous situation. Free will means being able to flow in any direction you want, not just in those channels that we always flow down habitually. So it looks like free will to us, but a lot of things look like a lot of things to us. of time and nature and fate. All this. You know, and the feeling of sitting with Maharaji was that he was completely beyond all that. And when, when we were with them, we all had this, this feeling of total uh, sense of fearlessness and security that nothing nothing bad could happen and that anything that happened whatever it was was okay because if it happened it had to happen and that the feeling was that he was so uh so on top of it all that anything that happened he either did it himself or he allowed it to happen because it needed to run that way like that story I told you yesterday about Ed and Chris there was a lot of things like that but it's not so easy to maintain that um, to live in that kind of presence and that kind of awareness with that kind of openness to everything and when he left the body I totally lost it you know, for years and years and years Because it's just, so I, you know, it was as if the Westerners were on this train, right? The train of our lives. And it stopped at this station, and we looked out the window, and there was Maharaji. So we all ran off the train. And we're hanging out with him, having a great time, you know? 
And then something happened and we found ourselves back on the train, you know. But everything was just a little bit different because we'd been with him. And don't give me that bullshit about, I want a guru with a body, I want to have somebody. That's nonsense. He's not, he wasn't the body. If he was the body, he would be gone and I wouldn't be here. And I don't live in memory of him. That's not enough. I live in presence of him. Now. And that's available for you too. What's stopping you? Your mind. That's all. Your thoughts, your beliefs, your conditioning. So, uncondition yourself. Take that Wella balsam and throw it out the window. We're all conditioned because we've been brought up in Western culture. We don't brought up not believing in anything. Nothing. We don't believe in anything. We believe in Cheerios and Mickey Mouse and hamburgers. That's what we believe in. Why not? That's what we were, we dropped into that. Or that's we grew up that way. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But there's one saving grace. Suffering. That's what does it. That's what does it. That's what Buddha's talking about. He's not saying, oh, it's all so terrible and it's always going to be terrible. He says, no matter what you do, it's going to be not enough. Dukkha. Is actually it's translated as suffering, but it's also it means the unsatisfactory nature of stuff. Nothing is going to be enough. Ever. That's the way it's made. It's not supposed to be enough. Tough it's a tough one since we're, you know, we're brought up in this romantic ideal that one love, one heart. Elvis was a maniac. He was a totally depraved human being. But everybody go, oh, Elvis, I love, I want that. <laughs> Good luck. It's in our, I mean, it's just so deep in us, though. It's hard. It's really hard. They have that in India, too. Everybody's in love with all the Bollywood movies and all the fantasies and everything. But they have nothing else, so they need something. We got everything. That's what, when we got to India, the people there, they just, they couldn't believe. They said, what are you people doing here? You know, you have everything in America. We had everything but the one thing we needed. And we all know what it is. You got to recognize that, that you know exactly what you want. You want that love. 
That's what you want. That's what we're all looking for. We look for it everywhere, all the time, in everybody that we meet. Is this the one? Is he the one? Is she the one? Everybody's the one. We're all one. But we're looking with our emotions. So, you got to get beat up. That's it. You get beat up, then you heal up, and then you get beat up again. Then maybe you just hesitate before you get back in the ring a little bit, you know. It's like, nah, okay, okay. But that's what practice is about. That's what the path is about. Deprogramming ourselves from the way our minds and our emotions work all the time. And beginning to recognize that uh, those programmed responses and programmed fantasies and ideas we have about life may not be true. And if they're not true, then what is true? That's what we have to find. Bhagavad Gita is a pretty good book, you know. There's really some beautiful stuff in there. It's worth reading. because it's just the bottom line. Simple, clear, boom. So you read it and then, you know, then you forget again. Read it again and again. And you don't have to chant it in Sanskrit because you don't understand it. Read it in English. There's some good translations. There's a whole bunch of translations. They all have their own bias. Every translator is trying to sell his philosophical beliefs by using Krishna's words. It's it's great, you know. <laughs> but there's there's you know the one I like the best is from Christopher Isherwood and Swami Prabhavananda. I think it's called something stupid like How to Know God or something like that. Is that is that what it's called? It's a very sweet. And Christopher Isherwood really knew how to use the English language. He was a great writer. <clears throat> and his Swami was a very good Swami. That's a good one. There's other good ones. And then there's this one book, which is so extraordinary that it's hard to believe. And it's called The Yoga of the Bhagavad Gita. And it's written by a guy named Sri Krishna Prem, who was an Englishman who went to India uh, when he was maybe 20 years old to teach at a university. And uh, he taught there for many years. I think he was teaching history or something like that, or English literature or something, back in the days of the English in the 20s and 30s. And uh, he lived in the house with his department head and his department head's wife, and he became a member of their family. And he and the, the, 
the wife of his department head developed a secret guru-disciple relationship. And after the, the old man died, he and uh, his, the, the department head's wife went off to the Himalayas and bought a little piece of land and built a Krishna temple and lived there the rest of their lives. And uh, it, this guy, he's brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. And he wrote, he wrote a series of articles for a, a magazine in India that later became this book. And it's extraordinary. Really, I remember back in 1969, we were up in Lama Foundation for the winter, and Ramdas would read, we would read this book every day out loud. And it completely rewired my brain. It's so intense. It's, some of it's a little bit old-fashioned writing, you know, a little fancy, but it's extraordinary. It's really just clear and clean and just exactly what it is. It's a beautiful book. So, huh? The name of the book is The Yoga of the Bhagavat, with a T at the end, Gita. But if you just search Sri Krishna Prem, you'll find it. It's, it's hard. It's, I think it's in paperback now. It's hard to find. And they printed it in India, but it's not printed in America anymore. I collect some of the old copies from the 30s and 40s, you know. These old books that smell like shit, you know. I love them. I love those old books. All right. Any questions or anything? We, let us get organized here. Where's the mic people? Oh, they went to Eckhart Tolle's place? <laughs> They're in the now somewhere else. Oh, Lisa. <clears throat> Morning. <coughs> Hi. I uh, uh, came to see you, I guess, January of last year up at the um, Gershwin Institute, Garrison Institute. Garrison. And I was inspired by the Hanuman Chalisa session. And I said, after a year of trying, this is the year I'm going to learn the Chalisa. Mm -hmm. And so 2015 was a great year, and, and I still don't know how to sing it. <laughs> but I have a real problem. And during the Chalisa, I don't know when to swallow. <laughs> you don't know what to swallow? Well, it's, it's, it's 40 lines, and you're trying to sing the whole time, and all of a sudden uh. you've got all the saliva in your mouth, and you're like... <laughs> I can't spit it out, and I can't swallow, because I've got to stop singing. And I never hear you pause, so how do you do it? <laughs> Pray for grace. You'll find a way. Or you'll die, one or the other. Or both. You find a way. You do quick little swallows, quick little breaths. And you don't have to sing the Chalisa. You can read it. It doesn't have to be memorized. People in India don't know it. They... they Many of them read it 
you know, most of the prayers they read also because it helps concentration, helps you pay attention. It doesn't have to be sung. It can be just spoken or chanted without melody, whatever. And get some tissues or something like that. <laughs> you got schmutz all over your beard there. Yeah. So I just want to say that guy's not crazy. I told my wife the same thing yesterday. <laughs> while, while Nina was sitting. I, yeah, but you're married. You, she has to drool on you. <laughs> but my question is, I recently retired, and I find that I was reflecting back on where I've come from. And, and now that I'm entering a different phase, I start to reevaluate everything that I've done. As you get close to your break, do you find yourself doing such a thing? What do you think back on? What are the things that move you? What has brought you to this point? My break starts in an hour and 14 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, as far as reflecting on the past, it's, it doesn't reflect very well. So. I don't think about that much, you know too tired to think about it. Um, except when I'm really moping around, you know, I don't really think about myself that much. I've given up trying to understand me. It's useless. So I just keep moving in whatever direction I happen to be moving. Whether it's up or down, I don't know. But, uh, You know, we think a lot, you know. We wake up in the morning and, we, and all day long, all we do is tell ourselves stories about everything that's happening, react to things. and There's very little awareness there. And once you start bringing some, making some space in, in that endless flow of thought, you kind of start to crave that, you know. It, part of you realizes this is the only place you can breathe, you know, when, when you drop into a quiet place. And um, you start to crave that more. And so you just, sometimes I find myself just sitting around, you know, without the TV on, without music, without anything. I don't, I'm not even doing, you know, nothing. I'm just kind of, it's interesting, you know. I don't. But we have to, we have to, we have to kind of put some effort into slowing down and to Mr. Tuar used to say, "Evaluative mind is like uh, being on a boat heading to the rapids." over a waterfall and thinking that the bank of the river is moving and you're sitting still. <laughs> you know, we, we have the complete incorrect view of things all the time. The, and in our view, me is the most central thing in the universe and everything revolves around that and reflects around that and relates to that. 
Everything everybody does. Everything Trump says. It has something to do with me. And we're always... And the thing that we're doing is we're always locating ourselves by kind of recognizing things and placing ourselves in a position to things that we see or think or feel or appear to uh, notice in the outside world. We're positioning ourselves. We're fine. And it, the actual truth is there's nothing there to position except the thoughts of doing that. It's a very crazy thing. But all we do is think. And we think, and we think, and we think, and we think we're thinking all this time. You know, but they say there's really nobody thinking. It's just thoughts. There's no one person in there. There's not like a little tiny little you. It looks just like you in the center of your head. That's what's really thinking all that stuff. It's not there. There's nothing in there, you know. And when you start doing more practice and start repeating mantra and repeating the name and get used to letting go of the thoughts and just coming back to the repetition, you start to spend, time will go by when you're just aware of the rep repeating of the name and you're not thinking that meta thought of like, wow, I'm really doing this or here I am repeating the name. That won't even be arising. You'll just be ram, 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 ram. And you won't be thinking that you're doing it. The thought of, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, won't arise. That's closer to what's to reality. Like I told you, the, that whole story about the name being a seed and how the house is destroyed. This house is me. And just like a house, it's a temporary structure that was put together by certain causes and conditions. It's temporary. The whole feeling of being separate from the rest of the universe, that's, that's what they call maya. That's illusion, delusion. We're really not separate. Really, like Maharaj used to say, Sub-ek, there's only one. It's all one. There's only one of us. But we've got all these little, tiny little me's looking out of all these eyes, thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm the one. Uh, no. <laughs> but that's okay, you know. I recognize that it's okay to be stupid. It really does. It's okay. When you're stupid and you think that you're really yourself, it's okay. Because it, you won't always think that. Time will come when you recognize what the truth is. That there's only love everywhere in all directions all the time. That's all there is. And we don't have to grab it because there's nobody to grab it. You, we are it. And you don't have to make yourself believe that. It's not like you don't have to 
manipulate your emotions to have some kind of experience like that. that yes, I'm all love. I'm love. And you don't have to repeat, I'm love, I'm love, I'm love, I'm love. You know, because that part of you isn't love. That part of you is your mind saying, I'm love, I'm love, I'm love. It's not very loving. So you just do your practice, live your life, and deal with whatever arises as best you can. That's it. I'm going to deal with lots of time at home. Probably not as much as I want. Hi again. Thanks. Where are you? I'm right here. Sorry. Hi. 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 Um, yesterday you talked. Thank you for a lovely weekend, by the way. I think we've all really enjoyed one another, and I know I have. <clears throat> <clears throat> I um, <clears throat> was listening to your uh, Kev, turn it up. response yesterday about uh, someone had told you uh, about the moment of conception, what were your parents thinking, what were they eating, what were they doing, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, my personal example, just for purposes of this conversation, is um, I know my mother had an abortion, and then she had me. They got married two weeks before I was born, I think. And then, you know, they divorced when I was two or something like that. So a lot of my stuff, which I know you encourage us to go to therapy and work it out, in addition to the practice, which I do <clears throat> both, um, you know, now in today's Mickey Mouse world and modern age, um, we can choose sort of to have families or not, to have kids or not. We may not choose a love relationship, but I think I speak for a lot of women in my situation who can choose to have children or not. So last year I froze my eggs. A few years ago I chose to not froze, freeze embryos. Like I didn't want a sperm donor. So my question about all of this is sort of like where do you, sort of fit in with this idea of not wanting to insert yourself into the karma, right? Because if I'm not supposed to have kids, then I won't have kids. Or inserting yourself into the karma if you're in a position to have the choice to potentially manifest. Because I don't want to necessarily repeat what's happened for all the ancestors and generations before me. And if it's supposed to end here, then let it end here. And yet at the same time, if I can sort of find my way on the path to a place where I can be self-aware enough to, fill, to fully parent myself before I can parent the child that I would have biologically, then is it okay to, not is it okay, but you know, whatever, to sort of introduce um, a child into the world given, given that situation. Anyway, thanks. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's a question of right or wrong. But first, let's be real here. You know, it'll take you the rest of your life to even begin to parent yourself. So if you're waiting for that, then I'd say, you know, pull the plug on the freezer. Because that's not going to happen. Everything we do is program response already, you know. The only thing that's going to save us is practice. And that doesn't, that's not overnight. That's not a, even a year or two. It's a lifetime. It's many lifetimes of work. So, but that's, nobody really expects us to be free before we act. Because then everybody just be sitting there like this. <laughs> Their whole lives. 
So you follow your heart. You do what you feel is right for you. That's all you can do. And that's the work is trying to figure out what that is. And that's your path. That's everybody's path is trying to find out what's right for them. And what will be the best thing for your life. And we can't wait for a moment to try to to understand it all before acting. That's not going to come. We might think we feel that way, but that's just something we're doing to give ourselves the... uh, excuse to act in a certain way or other. We'll never understand it. We never know what we're doing. We never know where we are. We never know how we're doing. All the judgments about ourselves are conditioned responses, looking through very colorful glasses. So all we can do is do the best we can, whatever that means to you. Nobody can tell you. It's completely and totally up to you to find what's right for you. And uh, honesty is the most important part of that equation. And that's the hardest thing to be with ourselves since we don't know who we are. What are we being honest about? You know, it's tricky. So, when my daughter was born, that was a big thing. Because I see there's a mouth to feed. More than once a day. Every day. For a long time. It was a serious wake-up call. I actually got a job. You don't even know what it was? Where's Bub? Is he here? Yeah, we were cleaning a place called Pig by the Tail. You walk into this place and you slip and fall because there's so much fucking pig grease on the floor. And then there's big pig grease boogers on the walls and the heads of stuffed pigs on the counter. And I've been a vegetarian already for like 30 years. <laughs> Hello, little piggy. It's like, yeah. But luckily after that, I go across the street to the chocolate, the French charcuterie, the French chocolate bakery. And I'd eat all the truffles and stuff and so so you know it's one thing leads to another and when you're trying to be honest with yourself you have to kind of take all that into account you know because there's a lot of you might feel this way today but in two years you might have regrets you might think you did the wrong thing You just never know what you're going to feel later. So you have to be really as clear as you can with yourself in the now. Knowing that you'll never know anyway. I mean, there's no moment of ultimate clarity until you're God, which you already are, but you don't know that. So... Yeah, my daughter managed to eat every day of her life. It's amazing. I don't know how that happened. 
Uh, we'll get back there after this. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Could you speak on um, how you're able to live in the presence of Maharaji or anyone else who's not actually in their body? I have a, a struggle with that. So I know earlier you um, spoke on it a little bit, but if you could just speak on it a little more. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Um, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, well, in the first place, we are not the body. You know, it's a consciousness that's living temporarily in this broken down old car. You know? And uh, that's... The more you know that about yourself, the more you can recognize that a great being is much more conscious of that than we are. But we're identified with our bodies, so it's very difficult to imagine what, what it would be if we weren't, you know, because this is all we know. It's like you've been driving in, around in a 1948 DeSoto. Yeah, you don't even remember a DeSoto. And then, you know, you just can't imagine a car that goes more than 30 miles an hour. But they exist. So. There are many kinds of bodies, you know, in a, you could say, too. When you're asleep at night and you're dreaming, in that dream you have a body. You're cruising around doing all kinds of stuff. And there's other people in the dream, too. They're all part of your mind, though. They're not really the other people. And then when you wake up, that body's disappeared. But you're still here. So these great beings, it's like that even on another level, after level. They're just like we think this is reality, and when we're asleep and dreaming, that's just a dream. They know this is just a dream. And reality is is where they live because they've already woken up. We're asleep, and this is just another level of dream. It's but it's the dream that we share with all these other people. It seems I'm beginning to wonder. Hmm. Never mind. So. But in the dream, you think it's real, you know. In the, this, and just like we think this is real. But, and so because we think this is real, that's where you are. You're not over there. You're not somewhere else, right? But when you wake up, in this dream, there's, you know. So you're 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 locked up in that body, but really it's just a dream, and those beings are awake. So they're present everywhere. They're, they're, this, we're in their dream. You know, they're dreaming us. And in fact, they say that the rishis, they say that rishis sat around together at night by the fire and told each other stories. And this is what they told each other. Us. And the stories they told each other, each one of them 
was in charge of a different uh, uh, avatar, so to speak. And he would tell the story of the avatar and create this whole drama so beings like us could live out our karmas and become free inside that drama. They wrote the drama, and we're part of what they wrote. In other words, we've taken on this role in this life. Each of us has our own role, right? You're you, I'm me. We have your, that's your role. But how did, this, how did this drama get produced, you know? Where did we get the, uh, the stage t- to uh, act out on, right? Our lives, this whole world. Well, it was created by the minds of these great beings in order that our karmas, which needed to be fulfilled, would, could take form as you and you and you and you and me and live out our lives, live out our stuff and develop as Bob Thurman would say, a sense of ethics, a sense of goodness, a sense of uh, caring about others and uh, generosity of spirit and offering help to other people and, and, and trying to recognize other people's needs as well as our own. This is what human beings have that other beings don't have. There's a generosity of spirit that is in direct contradiction to uh, what's the word? Uh, survival, self-survival. Like Bob was saying yesterday, we have heroes who, like war heroes, who will, you know, run out and attack and, you know, put their lives on the line to save their company or to save their, their, their other soldiers. And that's in direct contradiction to self-survival, which is the most important thing that we basically have. But a person will do that. He'll overcome his programming, genetic programming, to save somebody else. This is a very, very interesting thing. And in fact, one becomes a great saint over time, over thousands and thousands and millions of lifetimes by continually developing this, this uh, caring and gen- generosity uh, and giving to other people. Because it's the one thing that human beings can do that other forms of life can't do. Make a decision that's against, the, except in certain situations, animals can, a mother can try to protect the children, but that's a programmed response. It's beautiful, but it's a programmed response. So human beings, by going against the, you know, I'm going to feed me first and my own people first, going against that kind of programming is how we develop uh, a, a, a wideness of heart. And if you read the stories of the Buddha, and while he was a Buddha, becoming a Buddha, what they call a bodhisattva, life after life after life, he gave up his own life for other people, other beings. 
and uh, that's how he became a Buddha. And so this whole stage, this, this drama of our lives, which today we're all sharing, and tomorrow we'll all be in different places, but you'll still be on the stage. How, where did the stage come from? You know, they say that the rishis created this mind with their minds, the power of their minds. They created this so that beings like us who had karmas to live through could get that work done. This is unimportant. I mean, you don't have to think about this stuff, but it's fun sometimes to just think of, well, how did I even get this life? You know, what should I do with it? I don't know. I could spend the rest of my time playing Candy Crush. Maybe I should pay some attention to things. <clears throat> anyway, yeah, so I don't know how I got started on that, but that's over. Next. Good morning. Feel, it's it's just, uh, such an honor to be here in your presence. Um, I think... Um, the way you describe your experience when you were with Maharaji is probably a similar way that I feel when I'm in your presence. And I feel um, incredibly grateful and blessed for that. I feel that way when you're not with me also, and I hear you, so I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question that was kind of, um, it, it kind of goes on beyond what this young lady had asked you earlier. I, um, I feel the presence of some loved ones um, that were in my life physically that are no longer in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I have no question of their energy and signs and, and, and um, in, a, in a lot of different ways. But I struggle sometimes with thinking about the reincarnation. So, you know, um, where is this soul? And if this soul then gets reincarnated, is this soul, like, how is it possible that he's still here? In, 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 in this presence with me, but he's also now somewhere else and could be some other object or person or whatever. The whole problem is that you think you're the body and you think you're, we're, we're identified with the physical plane. So when you're identified with the physical plane, there's here and then there's there and that's somewhere else. But for someone who's not uh, identified with the physical body, that they could be anywhere, everywhere. Why not? That's not. We feel the love is always here. The love never goes anywhere. The bodies continually arise and disappear since the beginning of time. They say that all the time. They say, you know, Krishna, his body's gone. Ram's body's gone. But their name is still here. So that's why they say the name is such a, a powerful thing. And so name when you think of someone who is no longer in the physical body you're calling their name you're you're locating them in space in your consciousness and you feel them why not 
As far as reincarnation goes, it's a very complicated issue. Very complicated. And they've been arguing about it since day one. What's really reincarnated? Is there really a soul? Is it eternal? Or is it temporary? And where it happened? You know, they've been arguing about this shit for millions of lifetimes. And they'll continue arguing about it. And they say nobody but a fully enlightened being actually understands karma and reincarnation fully. But my dad left the body, but I feel him all the time. You know? Like, is it really him? Or is it just what I'm feeling? How would I know? How did I know it was really him sitting there watching TV with me? It looked like him because that's who I thought he was. Right? And now that's not there. Does that mean he's not here? I, I don't It doesn't necessarily follow as far as I can see. Because, because you think you're like within this like two or three foot little thing that everything else is out there somewhere else. That's just temporary delusion. You know, at night when you go to sleep, you leave your body. You, I mean, you're no longer identified with the body. You might be having dreams where you're uh, somebody else in another place. And, and, um, and we say, oh, that was just a dream. Well, guess what? That's what this is. But we believe this one. This one seems real, so we call it reality. But, you know. And Maharaji could be in more than one place at one time. That happened many times. So what does it mean? What is a body? What is, where is that person that you're thinking about? And if one person could do that, one being, well, does it mean, is he the only person in the universe who could ever do that? No. Anybody could do that, given the right situation. Mr. Tuari told me once they were up in the mountains and um, the, the, there was a celebration of the opening of one of the temples in New Delhi, which was about maybe an 18-hour drive from where they were. And... Uh, Maybe not that much, maybe 14 hours. So, and Maharaji was expected there. So, but they were way up in the hills. So sometime in the afternoon, Maharaji says to Tuari, let's go, let's take a walk. And they walked out on the ridge of the mountain. And Maharaji says to Tuari, sit down and meditate. So Tuari sat down, faced the mountains, closed his eyes. And who knows how long it was. But after some time, Maharaji, come on, get up. You're wasting my time. Let's go. And they went back to the house. So the next morning, uh, some people arrived from Delhi, and they brought a box of prasad from the, the meal that was served. And they said, Maharaji left before taking his meal, so we, we decided to come bring it to him. And they said, what do you mean Maharaji left? Just what I said. He was there at the temple, but when it came time to serve the meal, we couldn't find him. And they said, Dump, what are you talking about? He was here all day. And the guy looks around and says, no, he wasn't. He was there, and he was there too. He points to Tuari. <laughs> you got to kind of, you know, this seems hard and solid, but, you know, if you look closely enough, there's just molecules and there's lots of space in there. The only space that the only place there's any space is in here.
Where are you? Hi. Hi. Um, I've been living in Taos and going Mike, to the... Mike, Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? No, I can hear you now. <laughs> um, I've been living in Taos and going to the Hanuman Temple there. Uh -huh. And I have two questions. First of all, I was wondering why they only sing the Chalisa. And I asked them if they could sing some call and response and... They said it's up to the chanters, and they never do, except on a holiday. And also, I was wondering if you could speak a little about the beginning days when you guys started the Temple Lama Foundation and how that all came about. Well, I didn't have anything to do with the Lama Foundation. That was other people earlier than me. Um, <clears throat> the temple started in a typical Maharaji way. Uh, We decided Ramdas wanted to get a murti, a statue of Hanuman. So he asked this uh, artist to draw a picture of Hanuman, you know. And then he took it to India, to Jaipur, where they carve the, these statues out of marble. They've been doing the families, same family's been doing for hundreds of years, maybe more. So so then it got shipped in a big crate to New York. And in those days, there was only one person in the whole satsang who had a house. So somebody went and drove, picked it up in New York and drove it to New Mexico, where the only house in the satsang was. So it sat in the garage. No, it was outside of this guy's house in a big crate. And every year, we would go to New Mexico, uh, a lot of the people from India, and we would celebrate, uh, we'd have a bandara uh, celebrating Maharaji's Mahasamadhi, mas leaving the body. And we'd, you know, cook food and have a party. And then we'd all go back to our homes. So one year, uh, one of the women had a dream that Hanuman came to her and said, you know, there's a bee's nest in, around my neck and it's bothering me. So she told this, unfortunately or fortunately, she told it to this guy who happened to be uh, peeking on acid, <laughs> who decided the best thing to do was, was jump up on top of the crate of Hanuman and start ripping it up and opening it up. So... And that's, in fact, what he started to do, and other people joined in, and, uh, in fact, they found a bee's nest. And then, so now, the crate is open, Hanuman's out in the open, something has to happen, so they put him in a garage, and then that guy moved and put him in his other garage, and then the garage kind of became the temple. You see how deeply and cons we consider things and, and plan in advance? This is how Maharaji does things. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't ask you your permission, and he doesn't ask you to you know, agree. He just does it when the time is right, and you find things happening. You know that's the way it goes, and so that's exactly where Hanuman is right now, in the same place, in that garage. But now it's a huge temple. Now it's a temple, and then they're going to build another temple uh, for Maharaji's tucket for his bed in a separate place.
you know. And I don't know why they, I, I, I don't, I haven't been there much lately, so. Uh, I guess they sing the Chalisa because, you know, Chalisa is a big thing. Maharaji said every line of the Hanuman Chalisa is Maha Mantra. Maha Mantra means the great mantra, the, 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 the name. The name of God is Maha Mantra. There are some particular sects of religious groups who say that their mantra is Maha Mantra only, and other names of God are not Maha Mantra. As my grandfather used to say, God bless him. He said, every line of the Hanuman Chalisa is Maha Mantra, and all the names of God are Maha Mantra. The great, the, the, the number one hit parade mantra. A mantra that's only good for one thing, making us happy. There are mantras for all kinds of things. Mantras for finding buried treasure. There's mantras for getting people to fall in love with you. There's mantras to become president of the United States. Obama did that one. You know, he carries around a little Hanuman with him, you know, in his pocket. Um, there's mantras for everything, but the name is only good for one thing. That's for finding the love that lives within us. That's all it's good for. So, and he said, Hanuman Chalisa can change fate. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? But it shouldn't be done with the idea that I'm really scared I'm going to change my fate because then nothing will happen. But one should, could think of it as if, you know, your life is like a river and there's some rocks down there in the river. So those rocks just kind of get removed without you even knowing it. When you do any practice wholeheartedly, that's kind of what happens. The heavier karmas are dissolved and the things that you need come to you. So let's sing the Hanuman Chalisa and go home. Unless anybody, I'll take another couple of quick questions, if there are any. No? Good. Jamanamakuru Sudhari Varanaragula 
Sakahi Shri Pati Kanta Lagam 
Sovaradina Jan Kimata 
Ta-da! 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.